0: Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter three, verses one to three. Philippians three, one to three. We're picking up where we left off a, a couple of weeks ago. Our scripture reading uh, it comes from Romans chapter two, verses twenty-five to twenty-nine. So again, sermon passage: Philippians three, one to three. Our scripture reading is Romans two, twenty-five to twenty-nine. You will see how these passages are connected if you haven't already. Brothers and sisters, first I remind you that this is the very Word of God. and You have a duty to listen to it, to give ear to it, because it is God speaking to you. So do everything you can to focus your attention on God's Word as it is now read. Romans 2, 25-29. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law... And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, turning to the sermon passage, Philippians 3 1 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you, as we have so often done before, for revealing yourself to us in your word for revealing to us what we must believe and what we must do for revealing to us the name the only name by which we can be saved Lord we pray that you would help us to heed your commands to obey your word And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to hear today, that you would give us understanding, that your Spirit would guide us as your Word is preached. Be with us as we hear, and be with the one who preaches, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this passage, as you have read through it, you you know that Paul here is has a long continuation of thought. And so in some ways it was somewhat difficult to, uh, to divide it up, to, to stop at verse 3 and not keep on going. But there is so much in this passage that to, to keep on going, to, to go through verse 10, verse 11, uh, would be almost uh, uh, to, to skip over uh, important points in those passages. And so this morning we're just looking at the first three verses of chapter 3, and we will pick up next week where we leave off today. Now, it's been a couple of weeks, but you will no doubt remember that in the last sermon passage, Paul told the Philippians that he was sending Timothy to them, that he was returning Epaphroditus to them, and that he, Paul, hoped to come to them sometime soon. He was anticipating, he was expecting, hoping that he would be released from his imprisonment, his house arrest there in Rome, and that he might get to come to them. You'll remember that Epaphroditus, that he had been struck ill while he was with Paul in Rome and that the Philippians had gotten word of him becoming ill and that they were worried about him. They were concerned. He's a brother. And so understandably, they were concerned about him. And so Paul wanted to send Epaphroditus back to them so that they could see with their own eyes that he was much better. He had been near to death, Paul says, but now he's doing much better and he wants the Philippians to see that. But he's got another purpose for sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippian church and for sending Timothy to them as well. He wanted them to have two genuine examples with them in the flesh who would show them what it looks like, what it means to have the mind of Christ. He's commanded them earlier in chapter 2 to have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he wants to send these two men back to them. So they've got living examples before them of what it means to have the mind of Christ. Now, chapter 3 begins somewhat counterintuitively, knowing that the book of Philippians extends on to the end of chapter 4. It begins with, finally. And so this may seem uh, to someone who is reading it for the first time that Paul is about to wrap up. It's like the old joke about the pastor or the son leans over to his daddy and and says, Daddy, what does it mean when the pastor says in conclusion and and the daddy says absolutely nothing? And that's kind of what's going on here. That's why your pastor rarely, if ever, says in conclusion because sometimes I don't know when to stop. But here... Paul is not so much bringing the letter to a conclusion. Some critical scholars have said, well, he is concluding it here. And then some scribe along the way amended the text and inserted this section into it. It's not original to the book, but that's not at all what it has to mean. We know because we have the full letter, uh, Paul is only at the halfway point in his letter. And this word that's translated finally in the ESV and other English translations, it can also mean further. Furthermore, or in addition, and so we could read verse 1 this way. Furthermore, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And so Paul here is adding to what he has just said. Rejoice in the Lord. This is another command. It's in the imperative voice, he's telling them to rejoice. This isn't the first time that Paul has written about rejoicing in this letter. It isn't the first time that he has commanded the Philippians to rejoice, and it's not going to be the last time that he commands the Philippians to rejoice in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 18, he told the Philippians, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. If, Paul is, if Christ is proclaimed, Paul says, he doesn't care whether it's in pretense, if it's for uh, the pastor to, to gain some sort of uh, uh, a following or not. If Christ is truly proclaimed, then Paul will rejoice. In chapter 2, verse 18, Paul wrote, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And that, that phrase there, that, that, that is a command. It's in the imperative voice once again. Paul tells them in chapter 2, verse 28, that one of the reasons he wants to send Epaphroditus back to them is so that they will rejoice at seeing him again. And so that's the immediate uh, context, the, the prior context, to what Paul writes in our passage today. And in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, he commands them again, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Two commands right there, to rejoice. Now Paul knows that he's repeating himself. He's sensitive to the fact that he's repeating himself and he's sensitive to the fact that he's going to do it again. But he doesn't apologize for his repetitiveness. He isn't apologizing because uh, what he is saying what he is commanding is so important. Rejoice in the Lord. And so therefore he says there it's to say the same things to you, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. It's good for you. It's right for you to hear this again and again and again. Rejoice. What he is saying is important, not least of which is because of what he says in the next two verses, which we're going to get to in a moment. What he is saying, what he is commanding the Philippians to do again and again To rejoice is so important because there are so many things in this world, in our lives, that are working against our ability to rejoice. It is so easy for us in this fallen world to focus on its fallenness and to forget about the good things that God has done for us, that He is doing for us, that He's working in us. And so we're stripped of our desire to rejoice. We're lulled into a dreamlike state in which we forget to be thankful, to be grateful, to rejoice. Now in verse 2, Paul is going to give a stern warning to the Philippians to watch out for the Judaizers, those who compel Gentile converts to be circumcised. But he prefaces the warning with the command in verse 1 to rejoice. He's done this before, of course, but this time in chapter 3, verse 1, he adds the prepositional phrase, In the Lord, to the command to rejoice. Now, R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this passage, he says that Paul added this qualifier in the Lord because the Lord himself is both the occasion and the source of their joy. Such joy, because it is in the Lord, is independent of adverse circumstances. If you merely were to hear the, the command to rejoice, rejoice, be, be happy, as the old song goes, don't worry, be happy. And, and you look around yourself and you see the fallen condition of this world, you, you see the hardships that people face, you, you are aware of your own hardships. You might say to yourself, There's nothing, there's nothing. Which gives me any cause, any reason to rejoice. <clears throat> Every one of you, if you were merely to focus on on the world, if if you were just to focus on your own circumstance, you would you would lose all motivation to rejoice. You would seek to to find joy in a temporary sense at the bottom of a bottle or The bottom of a a pill container. And that's why it's so important what Paul says here to rejoice in the Lord. When we are in the midst of hardship, we will allow ourselves a multitude of excuses for our lack of joy and for our abundance of complaint. We give ourselves a lot of leeway. Well, I can't rejoice. Look at all of the things that are going on in my life right now. Look at at what's happening on, on the border between us and Mexico. Look at what's happening in my family. My parents' marriage is falling apart. Loved ones have illness. People are suffering and dying. That's why what Paul says here is so important. Rejoice in the Lord. We're so willing to give ourselves excuses as to why we ought not to rejoice, but but the Lord has given us every reason to rejoice despite our circumstances. The command in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture to rejoice in the Lord, it applies to us no matter what situation we find ourselves in. Paul is saying in this letter that if He can rejoice, then so can the Philippians, and so can we. The Philippians can rejoice in the midst of hardship. They can rejoice even in the midst of various trials and sufferings, even when, as Paul says in verse 2, the dogs and the evildoers and those who mutilate the flesh come calling, when they come to stir up trouble. Now here we get a rare glimpse into the righteous anger of the Apostle Paul. Every so often in his letters, it's on display. Up to this point in this letter, Paul has been overflowing with with joy and love for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. And his love for them hasn't changed. His anger, his righteous anger, is not directed at the brothers and sisters there. It's directed at these people that he describes as dogs, as evildoers, as mutilators of the flesh. Paul has patience for many, many things, but he has no patience for those who wish to do harm to Christ's church. And with these people that he has in mind, he minces no words. And so here we find Paul using some of the strongest language that he uses anywhere in in all of his letters. And he continues to speak in strong terms through the end of this section, which concludes in verse 11, which we'll get to in subsequent sermons. But here in, in verses 2 and 3, speaking of those who he calls the dogs, the, the evildoers, the mutilators of the flesh, these are people who have the potential to rob the Philippians of their joy. Now Paul here, he's not speaking of three different groups of people. He's not speaking of a group of those he, t- he, he calls the dogs, and a group of those he calls evildoers, and another group of those he calls Mutilators of the flesh. He's talking about one group of people for which he uses three, as it were, epithets. To call fellow Jews a dog, which was regarded as unclean, ritually unclean in in Judaism, was a very very bad insult, similar to certain types of insults that, that are similar in nature to that today. Paul is referring to the same group of people who are the circumcision party. They are also known as the Judaizers. These are the ones who are described in Acts chapter 15 as believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who maintained that it was necessary for Gentile believers to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses, the ceremonial law. They had to follow the ceremonies, the rituals. They couldn't eat certain things. They couldn't be with certain people. And the reason that Paul uses such strong words to describe the Judaizers is because their teaching destroys the doctrine of justification by faith, which is essential to the Christian faith. The Judaizers were adding works to faith, saying that Gentile converts to Christianity must be circumcised, saying that Jewish converts to Christianity had to keep observing the ceremonial law. But when you say that something else must be done, in addition to having faith, in order to be justified, that you are adding works to the equation. Circumcision, as well as keeping the law of Moses, was essential to salvation as far as the Judaizers were concerned. This is such a pernicious perversion of Christianity that Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And he writes a little further down in Galatians 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them if you want to abide by the law even one precept of the law, if you want to say that you've got to do one thing in order for your justification to be true, to be real, then you better abide by every little jot and tittle of the law. Every single thing. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3. And this is why he calls the Judaizers dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Because to follow their teaching is to walk down a path that leads directly to the bowels of hell. It is to undo, in a sense, what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It is to say his work on the cross, his work in his life, it's not enough. It's insufficient. What it's lacking is is what I can add to it, the good things that I can do. The fact that Paul gives what is called the, the threefold warning, it has a name. This warning in Galatians, uh, sorry, Philippians 3.2. The fact that he gives what is called the threefold warning about this group is evidence of how dangerous they are to the Philippian church. How dangerous they are to the churches at large. They were dangerous to the Galatian church. Paul gives various warnings to churches uh, throughout his area of ministry, but they are dangerous, these teachings of the Judaizers, they are dangerous to every church, in every place, in every age. To follow the teaching of the Judaizers is to rob yourself of everything that would enable you to rejoice in the Lord, because it makes your salvation dependent not upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but upon you. And we are faced with that same temptation today that the Philippians were faced with 2,000 years ago and the Galatians. We're faced with a temptation that says Christ Jesus' work, it's just got one little thing lacking in order for you to be justified. Your obedience. Your faith is not enough. You've got to add faithfulness to the equation. To construct any version of justification that includes your works or your faithfulness, which is what it means when you have to follow a rule such as you must be circumcised, is to manufacture a different gospel than the one Paul preached. It is another gospel. It's not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that gospel, that Christ's work wasn't good enough, it must be added to. It is not good news that gospel. It's not good news. And so it's not the gospel. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 25, circumcision is of value to you if you obey the law, meaning that you are perfectly obedient to it in every single way. But if you break the law, even in the slightest way, your circumcision is a sign to you of your own condemnation. It's a sign to you of the impending wrath that God will pour down upon you circumcision in the religious sense that the Judaizers mandated it. It is a binding pledge on the part of the person who undergoes it in which he says that he can do it himself. Now, I recognize I've got to be careful here. Not to get too graphic or in detail, but some of you, your son was born, you had him circumcised. And that's not what Paul is getting at here. What he's getting at is, is the ritual, the, the, the religious removal of the flesh that, that circumcision entails. Doing it for religious purposes. I don't want, to, I don't want you to be feeling guilty if, if that's something that, that was, was done when your, when your baby was, was born. As far as Paul is concerned, those who impose the mutilation of the flesh, circumcision, are in fact mutilating the Christian faith. Now the reason that Paul gives for his diatribe against the Judaizers is found in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Christians don't need circumcision imposed upon us as a religious right because we are the circumcision. We are the holy ones. We are saints. We have been set apart by Christ for himself. We don't need this outward sign. When Paul says that we worship by the Spirit of God, what he means is what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, where where he says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so true believers, they're not tied down by the ceremonial law to some specific holy place where they must worship God. There is no holy ground anymore. A few years ago, we had a a man drop by the church. Some of you may remember this who were here. And he visited with me for a little while. I didn't know him. I'd never met him before. And and. The next thing I know, he's got a he's got a cord attached to his belt, and he pulls out a small little bottle. And my Bible was laying open on my desk, and out on, onto the pages of my Bible, he pours sand. And I'm thinking, what are you? What is going on? And he and and he says in a very uh, reverent tone, "This sand was taken at the base of the Western Wall in Jerusalem. It, it's holy." Christ might have been walking near it when he was alive. That's true. And, and just like it was Charlie Brown said, or was it Linus in the, in the Christmas special, that the, the dust that was emanating from Pigpen might have been trodden on by Jesus himself 2,000 years before. It's, it, it's possible. And for a couple of years, I, I didn't know what to do with this. I, I, Pushed the sand off into a paper cup and had it sticking up on top of my bookshelf, and I didn't know what to do with it. What do you do? It meant so much to this guy, but it it didn't mean anything to me. And so eventually, I just sort of dumped it out on the lawn outside the door, because it's not holy. There is no holy ground. There's no holy grains of sand. It's not holy. This place is not holy. We worship in spirit and in truth. We can worship God anywhere where there are two or three who are gathered, gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. But, but the Judaizers, the circumcision party, those who say you have to abide by the ceremonial law of God, they say it's, it's tied to a specific location, a specific place. And you can't deviate from it. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go on, on a, the, the equivalent of a Muslim hajj. We don't have to do it. If you want to go to Jerusalem, if you want to go to Israel, that's fine. But but it's not a religious pilgrimage for you. It's not the way that, that Rome, the Vatican is for Roman Catholics. We are not tied down to a location. We can worship God anywhere. We worship God by the Spirit of God. We glory in Jesus Christ. We put no confidence in our flesh. God is not tied to any one place. He never has been. And so those who worship, who are in Christ by the Holy Spirit, we can worship God anywhere. The circumcision, true believers worship God in spirit and in truth. We're not tied to one physical location. But in addition to that, the circumcision, we also glory in Jesus Christ and not in ourselves. Thy work, not mine. O Christ speaks gladness to this heart. Now the word that's translated glory here in verse 3 of chapter 3, it's translated in other contexts as boast. So when Paul says in Galatians chapter 6 verses 13 and 14, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When he says boast twice in those two verses, he's using the same word. The Judaizers can boast in their own flesh to their own destruction. But Paul will instead boast, he'll glory in Christ Jesus. We don't boast in our flesh. We don't point to the things that we have done. We boast in Jesus Christ. Finally, the circumcision, true believers in Christ, we will not put any confidence in our flesh. Now by saying this, Paul strongly implies, I think it's safe for you to assume that what he means by this when he's speaking of the Judaizers is that that is exactly what they put their confidence in. They put it in their flesh. They look to themselves, but not those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. If you try to size yourself up, Using the law of God as a yardstick for your obedience, you will never match the standard. Because God's standard is perfection. God's standard requires perfect, complete, total obedience. You will always fall short. And so the quickest way to strip yourself of your ability to rejoice in the Lord is to put your confidence in your own flesh. To do that means that you want to rejoice, not in the Lord, but in yourself. But the result is you can't rejoice in anything. Because you've got nothing in which you can rejoice. There are still modern day Judaizers around. There are those, and many of you, you know them. You've been around them. You've come out from them. Those who want to add faithfulness to by faith alone. They're around. It's true. But the biggest threat to you is not the Judaizers around you, but the Judaizer within you. The resident Pharisee within each of us. The one who makes up all manner of laws and rules and regulations, oftentimes not that we ourselves have to keep, but that everybody else has to keep there is still a part of each of us that holds on to the myth that by keeping the law, we can earn favor with God, that we can earn our salvation. We've got to do something, we think. But on the flip side of that same coin, there is a part of us that believes our failure to keep the law will result in the loss of our salvation. It's legalism either way, and so that's why these new systems that have cropped up over the past couple of decades... That they allow for those to to, to fall away from the faith who were considered the elect of the faith. However, none of this is to say or even to imply that there is no place for obedience in the life of the believer. Don't take this to mean that you are being given total license to go out and do whatever you want. God, through the Apostle Paul, has just given a command rejoice in the Lord and we are expected to obey it so we can't just toss out the moral law along with the ceremonial law and the, and the civil law of the old testament we simply have to put obedience to the law in its proper place what, what is our obedience to the law where, where does it fit it's it's our grateful response to God's gift of salvation Which He has given to us solely according to His grace, not according to our works. Our obedience to God's command is one way by which we say thank you to God for saving us. To say thank you, to express to God your love for Him, for sending His only begotten Son to die on the cross in your place. It's one way to do it, it's not the way to save yourself. It's the grateful response of someone who knows that he has been saved. There is a beauty to what Paul has done in these three brief verses. He sternly warns the Philippians to be on guard against those who would push them to obey the law in order to be right, to be in right standing with God, while at the same time commanding them calling on them to obey this law, this command that he's giving them, to rejoice in the Lord. It is impossible to be legalistic, to try to earn your own salvation, while at the same time rejoicing in the Lord for what he has done for you. Even though that means you're being obedient to God's command in this passage. Rejoicing in the Lord means that we have heartfelt gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done to earn salvation for us. It means that we are grateful for the fact that we've been been adopted into the household of God. To rejoice in the Lord means that we're thankful that God has set us free from our enslavement to sin. It means that we understand that the Holy Spirit has brought us from death to life, that we have been washed clean from sin and set free from guilt. As Sinclair Ferguson writes, our circumstances provide an all-too-fickle foundation for profound and lasting joy. But joy in the Lord is able to coexist with all kinds of situations. Its source does not lie in our changing circumstances, but in our unchanging Savior and in the joy-giving word He has spoken to us. If you find yourself having a difficult time rejoicing in the Lord, try to see if it's perhaps because you've been putting your confidence in your own flesh in your own talents, in your own abilities, rather than in the Lord and in Him alone. Look to see if perhaps it's because you've lost sight of what is of ultimate importance. If perhaps the struggles that you have endured in this world have have dragged your, 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 your gaze downward. And you're not looking upon your Savior the way that you should. Remember this... Thy works, not mine, O Christ. Speak gladness to this heart. Brothers and sisters, Christ's works for you. They are the heart of the gospel. And in that we can all rejoice. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, we thank you, dear Lord. We thank you for the command that you have given to us to rejoice. We thank you also, dear Lord, for the stern warning that you give to us to watch out for those who tie obedience to the law, to our justification. Lord, help us to be grateful. Help us to be thankful. Help us, Lord, to be gratefully obedient to your commands because of what you have done for us through Christ Jesus.